Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. They're going to double back on their first missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, had not continued with them in the work. Here's an interesting bit of information. They had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, (coughs) sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That's all we'll need of that passage to get into the first point. And that is that let's just get real, people. In the kingdom, in the church, there is conflict from time to time. I know people church shop. And sometimes what's on their list of criteria is I'm looking for a church that didn't have any problems. (laughs) I'm not worried about churches that have problems. I'm worried about churches that don't know how to solve problems. You're going to have problems. Any relationship you have, you're going to have problems. You have a marriage, you're going to have problems. The question is, do you know how to solve your problems? Paul and Barnabas, two key Christian characters, they can't agree on something. It happens in the kingdom. And Luke notes that their disagreement was so, he uses the word, Sharp. At least that's the translated word. That's the one that the translator said that that depicts this this conflict they had. They had such a sharp conflict. They decided they couldn't work together anymore. And the conflict was over the issue of Mark, the one who gave us the gospel. John Mark. He went with them on the first missionary journey. He bugged out. We don't know why, but we're assuming that was just something about that that didn't meet his expectations. A little bit tougher than he anticipated, and so he, he just left. I, I can't do this. That didn't set well with Paul. Now, this was a relative of Barnabas, so he was a little more patient. Poor John Mark. He wants to work with him a little bit. Paul says, well, okay, let's double back. Let's go, go check on a missionary journey. And Barnabas says, I'll go get John Mark. It, he just assumed that would be okay. And Paul says, I don't want him to go along with us. And you can just imagine the conversation that turned into maybe a heated disagreement. Why don't you want him to go? Well, he didn't make it the first time. I don't 
believe he'll do any better the second time. And Barnabas, he gets protective. You know how you are, you're protective of your loved ones, protective of your family. And so they could not work this out except to go separate ways, which was a good thing. Now, you, you might ask yourself the question, who was right and who was wrong? Well, you know, as they finally made the final decision, they were both right. Paul was right in thinking, I can't have dead weight. I can't have liabilities going on this missionary journey with me. He knew what he had already experienced. He knew the potential of what lay ahead for them. And he can't have somebody who doesn't have the backbone to endure this going along. And he has to play nursemaid to somebody. So he's saying, no, this is not going to work. Now, Paul wasn't against working with people. Paul worked with Timothy. Just immediately when he dumps John Mark, he gets Timothy. It wouldn't work that. Uh, against working with somebody, he was against working with John Mark. He had failed to prove himself. So Paul had a point. This is going to get rough. I don't trust you. You failed me one time. This is risky. We can't get out there in the middle of nowhere and you decide you're going to go home again. But Barnabas didn't want to give up on him. And Barnabas was right. So he takes John Mark under his wing and they go to a different kind of ministry. The conflict does happen in the kingdom. Now, it's important to understand this parting of ways did not cause Barnabas to get bitter against God or Paul to get bitter against God or either one of them to leave the ministry or either one of them to spend the rest of their life I can't talk to that man, I don't like him. Now, they, they came to a sharp disagreement, but they eventually came to appreciate one another again. It's that thing about being able to resolve the conflict. In the years of ministry, in the years that I have been in the pastoral ministry, there have been times when we've had sharp disagreements. I've had sharp disagreements with somebody in my congregation, somebody in leadership positions, somebody on the board. Now the question is, can we get through this and still not be mad at God, mad at the church, mad at each other, mad at the ministry? Can we work through this? I went to one church, got elected as the pastor, and the mentality, people had already adopted an opinion about me before I got there. The, the story's too long to get into. It doesn't matter. Some people were looking forward to some people were not before I ever got voted in they had a bias against me so when uh, that night when they voted me in there was a, a man on the back row when the vote was announced I had been elected he he jumped up marched to the back door hit the back doors noisily you know you could hear something had happened went outside and he left and I thought, I've got to make a friend out of him. <laughs> so I started, started zeroing in on him. Now, he was the first, when we moved back to Missouri, this is out in California, he was the first and one of only, I think, two couples that ever made the journey to come back and see us. We became that close 
he would, he would have laid down his life for me. Because rather than allowing this conflict to be something that I would nurse, I would say, all right, you, you, you've already established this now. We'll never be good buds, you know. You, you have to work through that. He was a good man. I thought I was a good man. We need to get to that point where we both appreciate each other. And that's working through the conflicts, not the unrealistic concept that there shouldn't be any problems, but there's going to be problems. Work it out. As a pastor, I've occasionally had to deal with a few individuals that, like, like John Mark, let's take that example, wanted to serve in a place above or beyond their ability. And it's never easy redirecting somebody when they do that. I was in one church looking for somebody to lead the youth, a volunteer. And I had announced to the church, you know, pray with me. We need somebody to lead the youth group. We just couldn't get something to come together. And there was one man in my church, he was probably in his 50s at the time, and let, let me just suffice it to say, probably of all the people I had in my church, the least qualified to lead the youth, connect with them. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, he said, I knew it, I knew it. What did you know? He said, I knew that God was gonna call me to do this and I'm your man. And, you know, it's one of those situations I get put in where I, I know he cannot. He just, sometimes you just know that you know that you know. This is not good. And you've got to somehow redirect them. I, I've, I've had this happen over and over. Uh, another time I had, uh, yeah, it, it was the same situation. Needed a, needed a youth minister. And a young man came in to me that wanted so desperately to be in the ministry and he tried to be the worship leader and he tried and he's a good young man really but he was not qualified to be what we needed in leading the youth and he came up and he said well God spoke to me that I'm supposed to be your youth pastor you know that puts you in a difficult position you've got to work through those things Paul and Barnabas had to work this out I, I, I occasionally see the case where we deal with people who are eager but not ready, just like John Mark. I see it in the ministry quite often. They want to get involved at levels they're not quite ready for. And I've, I've done this myself when I was on the evangelistic field back in the uh, mid to late 70s. I got started off as a bachelor. And then in 77, I got married. Now I have a wife, and we're on the evangelistic field. And the evangelistic ministry did not fit the married lifestyle very well, so we begin to think of something else we need to do rather than dragging my new bride around the country in a Greyhound bus. So we begin to consider maybe we need to go off the field and settle down in a church somewhere. Well, my home church came available. And I had talked with pastors I was holding revival for. They said, you ought to go apply for that. That would be good for you. I said, I don't know. You know, it's my home church. I just don't know if that's going to work out. Oh, he said, uh, I did it in my church. It worked out wonderful. 
Homeboy comes back home, pastors his church. I don't know. We thought about it. So we put our resume in. And I heard nothing. You know, I thought in my mind, my name shows up. They know me. It's a no-brainer. This is our pastor. So weeks passed. I hear nothing. I hear nothing. And finally, I told my dad. I said, you have any... My dad was not on the board at the time. He had been on board for many years. I said, you have any idea what might be going on here? I'm feeling kind of odd. And he didn't say anything. But he took it upon himself. Uh, next time they had a board meeting, he went out and he addressed the board. He said, now, he said, I know that my son has put a resume in here. He said, I'm not here to tell you what you ought to do about electing him or hey all I'm saying is I know that he's wanting to get on with his life and if you don't want him would you at least communicate that if you have no intentions if you're continuing to consider that's fine but if you've come to a conclusion already this is not where you're going just write him a letter and tell him he'll he's big enough he can deal with that dad had more confidence than I did So they did. They, they had actually come probably immediately to the conclusion, we don't want him for whatever reason. And I was devastated to get this letter, thank you, but no thanks. I mean, it was, it was more polite than that, but that's what it, thanks, but no thanks. And here I am trying to be in the ministry, trying to take care of my wife. I had put blood and sweat and toil and tears into this church. I was there for work days on weekends and sacrificing nights and helping build this thing. I knew the church in and out. I knew the people. I grew up with them. I wanted a pastor. No, no thanks. So I was wounded. I had to move on from that. And years later, uh, they needed a pastor, and one of the people came up and said, would you consider putting your resume in? By that time, we had gotten past that other thing. I said, really, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Oh, why not? Well, because it's my home church. And I think I was using the same logic they used back then. It's this is not going to work. No, that'd be a wonderful thing. I said, no, it wouldn't be. And you know what I had to do? I had to process the fact they were probably right. That probably would not have been a good thing. For me to go in and try and pastor that church at that time, at that place in my life, I just had to be humble enough to finally come to the realization they weren't wrong. I was the one that had expectations. So I've seen this in the ministry. I've seen it where I've had to deal with people. I've seen it where people have had to deal with me. It just happens sometimes. And from this passage where Paul and Barnabas are having this, this disagreement, Barnabas takes John Mark, Paul takes uh, a young man named Timothy, and they, they both become mentors. There is something really, really exciting about being a mentor. And I don't know how many of you are into that, but why not? Why are you not searching out somebody that you can take under your wing and you can bring them along and you can take them to the next level? Don't you all think you have something to offer? Don't you all have somebody who looks to you and, and, and admires you and respects you? And can't you pour into them? Be an encourager. Be a mentor. Bring somebody along. 
One of the most gratifying experiences in kingdom work is watching converts develop into workers in the kingdom. And in all honesty, if you'll excuse me for using a personal example, we have a perfect example sitting in our church here today. When my middle son uh, was about 14, 15 years old, I bought him his first guitar, and I showed him a few chords, and after that, he knew chords I never knew existed. <laughs> Ann and I have a little 8-millimeter uh, digital, uh, uh, not digital, but it's an 8-millimeter video. Not, not back to film, it's actually video. Don't get me too old there. Of Derek and his very first worship service he ever led. Put together one for the youth. And he had found in the little youth group they had uh, boys that, that he said, I'll teach you drums. Now Derek's 15. He said, I'll teach you drums. He got another one and said, I'll teach you bass guitar. And then he got some others and he said, I'll teach you to sing. And so he put together his own little band, his own little worship team, and they, uh, I don't know what the occasion was, but they must have invited, was it a youth rally? They put this together for a youth rally. Youth came from other churches for that night. And, and there he is, there's his little team up there, 15 years old, training others already, pouring into them, making them do things they had never dreamed that they would do. Being a mentor is highly satisfying. Take somebody, train them, raise them up, teach them what you know. Be an encourager. I want to move to the second point. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So, he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And see, we've got a cultural problem going on here. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. And you remember what that decision was? They went to Jerusalem. They had a little council meeting. Do new converts had to be circumcised? And the council said, no. So Paul goes and finds Timothy. The first thing he does is circumcise him. And if you're putting two and two together, you're saying there's something wrong with this picture. You just went to Jerusalem to dispel this myth that this has to be done. Then you pick up Timothy. The first thing you do is circumcise him. What is going on here? This is something wrong with this picture. What Paul is doing, he's demonstrating an important principle that we need to live by in our Christian faith. And that is, from time to time, we have to be willing to waive our rights to be more effective in our ministry. Now, when you start talking about waiving our rights, that does not settle well with us because we live in a nation that rights is a constant topic of conversation. Our God-given rights, endowed by our Creator, guaranteed by our Constitution. Don't trample on my rights. And it's especially a hot topic in this day and age. 
So we have this mentality that we are developing about what are my rights? Don't take away my rights. And then we come to this where I'm telling you as a Christian that sometimes you might need to waive your rights and that's hard for us to digest as 21st century Americans. But the fact of the matter is, Timothy <clears throat> was a hybrid. He was half Jew, half Greek. He was not circumcised. Paul said, you can go with me, but we still have some Jews who think this is a real issue, and if you're going to travel with me, and they think that you're an uncircumcised Gentile, a Greek, they may not receive us. It may close some doors for us. And if all it takes is to keep the access open, we're going to circumcise you, so that will not be an issue. Even though it had already been decided in Jerusalem it shouldn't be an issue, you know that for some people it takes a while for that issue to settle down. So he said, we're not going to let this be a barrier to ministry. You hear what I'm saying, people? Do you really care about winning the lost? Is that important to you? If it's important to you, you will, might come to a place in your life sometime where you might have to surrender your Christian liberty and waive your Christian rights because it's an impediment to getting close to these people. Let, let me just give, create an example for you. It may never happen to any of you. But what if you live in a neighborhood where you have, let's say, Muslim neighbors? And for all practical purposes, they're likable people, right? I mean, they, 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 they're, they're good neighbors. They're quiet. They keep their, their house uh, presentable. They, they, they're kind to you. They interact. They give gifts to you. And every, but, but, you know, you want to give the gospel to them. And because you have liberty and freedom in Jesus Christ, you're not bound by the Old Testament. But you should not invite them over for a ham dinner. I don't care what you think you can do, what you've been set free from, that's saying, okay, I will waive my rights. I have a right to eat this. And you're going to make a concession because you know it would be offensive to them to eat pork, right? Bacon, ham, chops, whatever. Now you can just kind of go with that example. Uh, uh, take it to any level you want to take it to. The fact of the matter is you may be put in a position where you have no problems doing certain things, but if it offends somebody that will close the door of you being a witness to them, you might want to lay that down. That's what Paul was doing here. He could argue the case it wasn't necessary for Timothy, but he was trying to reach the lost. And Paul would make the case more than once in his epistles, in his writings, that he was willing to waive his Christian rights. So listen to this. He said, if I have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if I reap material harvest from you? If others have this right of support, shouldn't we have the right? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. There it is. Waving my rights. I have a right to receive a love offering. If anybody has a right, I have a right. But I'm not going to take that right because I don't want anybody to misconstrue that I'm in this for the money. 
that the only reason that he's doing this is because he's taking up some good offerings where he goes. He said, I don't want to get into that. I have a right to, but I refuse to exercise that right. And again, forfeiting his rights, he writes to the Corinthians in the ninth chapter. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He didn't have to, but he chose to, waiving his rights. And then he says in the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians, therefore... If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into a sin, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause him to fall. And I know that's a difficult one because you say, well, now, wait a minute. Here we are in this church. If we've got one person in this church that has a, a conviction against eating the meat, in this case, it was sacrificial meat. But let's say somebody's bound by Old Testament ritual and they have a problem with, with eating the pork, eating the bacon, eating the ham, eating the pig, eating the catfish, all the good stuff. And they have a problem with it. Am I implying that because they have a problem with it that you ought to give up, up for the rest of your life? No, that's a whole other issue. Strong faith, weak faith. We're talking about some occasions where you might have an opportunity to develop a relationship with somebody to gain their trust that for some reason there's one thing that's that could maybe offend them and 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 hold and close the doors and the opportunity are you willing then to waive your rights it, it seems today that many Christians are more concerned with defending their rights than they are being an effective Christian witness there might be times when simply waiving your rights just allows you to make more progress in ministering to people than being stubbornly argumentative. And every situation has to be individually evaluated to see if that's the case. There's no single one-size-fits-all answer to this. Sometimes you can't let legalists put you in bondage because of their weak faith, but other times your stubborn defense of your Christian liberty might be the only obstacle that's standing between you and some breakthrough with an individual that you're witnessing to. The elective forfeiture of our rights is maybe one of the most difficult issues of Christian discipline in the 21st century. But missionaries understand this. Missionaries go to the field ready to waive their rights because they might go into a culture that objects to what the missionary would customarily do, what he would customarily eat. And he can't do those things as a missionary because he can't offend these people and then minister to him. So what does he have to do? What does she have to do? They go into the, to the cultures and they try to learn what is offensive to them and not offend them that they might have the opportunity to minister Christ to them. That's what it's all about is winning the lost is far more important than defending your rights. Number three. You got two sermons down and one to go. You doing all right? Verse 6 Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Listen carefully what's going on here. When they came to the border of Mysia and went down to Troas, they tried to enter. Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. 
Now during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here is another difficult issue. If you think the issue of waiving your Christian rights is difficult, this one is also a difficult one for Christians to grapple with. And that is understanding the leading of God. Understanding the will of God. What is he asking you to do? What are you hearing? Are you hearing his voice or are you hearing your own desires and ascribing that to God's voice? One of the most difficult things we do as Christians is understanding God's will understanding his leading, understanding his voice, so to speak. On one extreme of this subject matter is the idea that God has our life planned out to the smallest detail. And therefore, why do we have to do anything? It's all planned. It's all predestined. Basically, we're on autopilot. That's the one extreme. The other extreme is believes, believes that God is, by and large, uninvolved in human affairs. He gave this universe a spin in distant history, and he's taken his hands off ever since. Whatever happens, happens. And then somewhere in between is where life is so messy, we, we agonize trying to understand the difference between the two extremes, which we know are not true. So God's involved in our life. We believe that. God leads us, we believe that. But to what degree? What are we supposed to pray over? Do we have to get up in the morning and pray, God, shall it be shredded wheat today or frosted flakes? What do we have to pray about in life? I remember a young man that came out of, well, he got saved through the Jesus movement. And he joined up with our little quartet. We loved him. He was just a lot of fun. Uh, but he had early on, under the teacher, that he, under the pastor, he, he had cut his, or he'd cut his teeth. He had picked up on some odd ideas. And one of those was just having to pray over everything. Dave, come and go down to the Dairy Queen with us. It was after church. He said, I'll pray about it. Well, when you get done praying, let us know. We'll be at the Dairy Queen. I mean, it was, it was honorable, respectable that he cared if God wanted him to go to Dairy Queen or not. But I think we sometimes get too specific in life and, and think that God has to give us permission for everything that we do. And that that's not at all what this is about. So we, we make errors in trying to, to figure out and get a balance in God leading us and us being obedient and us just sometimes getting silly in the process. What had happened in this text is Paul had been divinely directed by the Spirit not to preach in Asia at that particular time. Don't go there. He wanted to, but the Spirit said don't go there. And when they came to the border of Mysia, the spirit of Jesus, and don't make anything of that terminology. There's nothing special about the spirit of Jesus other than the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Would not permit them to enter and told them, don't go there. Just, just he, What the spirit told him is, told him where not to go. Not yet had he told him where to go. 
So you, you, you got half of the equation here. I know where I don't need to be. I just don't know where I'm going to be yet. And that night, Paul had a vision of this man in Macedonia that is standing up and saying, calling, come help us. And so it came in bits and pieces. The first was, don't go there. You've been prohibited, okay? Now I have to wait. The next was, the vision had directed him, now this is where you do need to go. And from this, I've just got three simple points. And that is, number one, you can make plans, but you always have to make your plans prayerfully. Don't be afraid to make plans. Don't be afraid to, to cast a vision for your life. But cover everything in prayer. It's always got to be, you know, we're going to go the Lord willing. You always have to be willing to listen to the Spirit to redirect you. As long as your plans are being made that are godly plans, that's okay. Don't make wicked plans, but make godly plans. So make your plans, but stay open to the Lord of him having the opportunity to redirect you. Paul had made plans. He knew where he was going to go until God said, no, I've got better plans for you. So you had to change things at that point. If you merely make plans and never consult God, you're basically taking God clear out of the picture. I know this, this might be helpful. I hope it's helpful to the young people here. What should I do with my life? And young people are notorious for coming to that place in life where they're saying, I don't know which college I need to go to. I don't know which job I need to take. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And if they, if they care anything about God's leading, they might even say, Lord, show me the college you want me to go to. Lord, show me the job you want to take. Lord, show me the person you want me to marry. And those are all noble and fine and good. But how does God talk to you? How many of you get letters from God? How many of you God scribbles his message in the plaster of the wall and you wake up in the morning, there it is. How many of you hear an audible voice from heaven where God says, go to Africa? We don't get those kind of messages very often. And as much as we want God to lead us in those very vital things, where do I go to school? Where do I go to work? What career do I have? Who do I marry? Oftentimes we don't get clear answers on that. But the fact that you ask God... The fact that you submit yourself to him oftentimes results in God just leading you. God just opening doors. God just closing doors because he honors your submission to him and saying, God, lead me. And sometimes the doors you thought were going to go open slam shut and you can back off having bathed this in prayer and say, thank you, God, for shutting that door. I was ready to go. But you have pre prohibited me from going my direction. God can do that for you. Number two, we are told God speaks to us, but we are not told how he speaks to us or how he might lead us. And you have to be willing to let God lead you, as I said, by the open door policy, by the closed door policy, by the wisdom of somebody else speaking into your life. You never know how God is going to speak to you. We had a, a point in our life where my wife and I were just stunned. Just, I think we were both in shock of what had happened 
in our life. And we were numb sitting in a pizza parlor trying to get our mind off of what had happened to us and trying to have some brief moments of sanity in the midst of all this chaos that was coming down on us. And we sat there and had very little appetite, very little conversation, just sat there and stared at each other. And I saw an elderly man get up and walk out, and out of the corner of my eye, he turned around and walked back in and came over and paused at the table. And he said, Psalm 32.8. And he walked out. Uh, that'll give you the eebie-jeebies. You know, you you got to find a Bible somewhere. You got to what what is this? You know, is this a message of death and destruction? Oh, I don't know what's happening here. The soul that's in it that shall die. So we hurried to find our Bibles, looked it up, and there was a promise in there about God knows what you're going through. And just hold on to him. And this, this man, I don't know what he knew about us. I don't know how he could have known anything about us. I, I, I think that's one time in my life where I'm convinced, and I don't think anybody will ever convince me otherwise, that God had inspired somebody to drop a word into our life that we needed the reassurance that God says, I know how you're hurting. I know what you're going through. And I'm going to take care of you. And it was a month at least of going through this, this agonizing pain. And every morning we wake up, we would read that verse. I'll instruct you and lead you in the way you need to go. There was not a message we needed more desperately in that hour. And that word to drop into our life. I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know. I, we, it, we were totally brain dead. And God says, I'll lead you. I'll instruct you. If you follow me, just, just follow me. Now, we don't always know how God's going to lead us or how he's going to speak to us, but he will. The final point is we, we make plans and we submit them to God for his approval or his modification. You can't, you can't just sit around all day and say, uh, when God tells me what to do, I'll get up and do something. You can't do that. You got to get going. You got to get up. You got to do something. You got to do it prayerfully, but you can't just sit there and do nothing until God physically forces you and takes your hands and takes your legs and forces you to do something. Hearing from God is one thing. But in the absence of a clear word from God, you know what he has given us? He's given us the gift of wisdom from above. Wisdom is not an idle gift. That fills the gap when you don't know what God has said yet, when he haven't given you, hasn't given you a message yet. He has given you wisdom to keep you moving forward. If you don't have heavenly wisdom, you're in trouble. You need to get some wisdom. That's going to carry you between the messages that God gives you, between those times when you know exactly what you need to be doing. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray for heavenly wisdom. We bathe our plans in prayers. 
from time to time we've made the best plans and then God at the last minute redirects us. Don't get, don't get proud. Let him do that. That's okay. Your best made plans might be massaged and manipulated a little bit by God. God redirects. That's okay. God gets the last word, doesn't he? My final summary. Pray. Plan. Stay biblically sound. Don't get off in Weirdsville. Seek wise counsel from trustworthy, godly people and use godly wisdom. Now number four, let me back up to that and make a quick comment. Seek counsel from trustworthy, godly people. I was sitting around the table. I serve on another board and the director of the board, the president of the board, started off with a little devotion. And he said, uh, how do we hear from God? And so they went around the table. I, I generally don't say anything. I'm the only pastor on the board. So I try not to have the ultimate word, the last word, the, the authoritative word. I didn't let everybody talk. That's okay with me. I don't have to say anything. So they went around and they went to the first well. Somebody said, it's very predictable. I knew where this was going to go. This is not my first journey around the mountain. So the first one says, uh, well, I, I think we can, we can read God's word and, and let that speak to us. And then somebody says, well, obviously we pray. We pray for God to show his will for us. And uh, the rest of them pretty well reiterated those two things. We pray and we read the scripture. And they pretty well exhausted the, the conversation and the... Uh, president of the board was not going to let it pass without me saying something. He said, do you have something to say? I said, no. He said, come on, I know you have something to say. I don't really want to say anything. It's fine. He said, come on, come on, come on. Well, all you have to do is give me three chances. <laughs> you want it that bad, you'll get it. I said, well, I, I really hate to say because I said, I, I think maybe I, I sound like I'm contradicting the people here. But I said, hey, we pray. Yes, we do. But prayer is so subjective. Unless God answers in very definite tones, we pray and sometimes we think we hear God. We hear what we want to hear. It's subjective. There are like 12 million Mormons. Every one of them are told, if you will pray, God will show you which one is the right religion. See, you hear what you want to hear. They prayed and that's what they heard. God told them it's the only right religion in the world. Number two, you read scripture. And scripture's good. But scripture doesn't always have my name in there and say, Scott, you need to go do thus and so. Sometimes scripture is, is I mean, it's always something that was written to somebody else several thousand years ago, and I have to read it and say, does that apply to me? And I have to interpret. So it's what? It's subjective. And I said, the only thing, my answer was not this long. It's just long because I'm a preacher. I said, the, the only thing you can do that is not subjective is to go and ask some people that you trust. Run it by them. Tell them, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I, I, I'm hearing. Do, 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 do I sound like a complete idiot? And I said, let people speak into your life that you trust. Bounce it off them. So when you've got prayer and you've got scripture and you've got somebody speaking into your life, you've got a pretty good, you've got a pretty good safety net there to discern the will and the leading of the Lord keep moving keep planning keep praying keep listening 
God will guide you. Because he loves you. And he wants to do that. Would you bow your heads?